the seventh ray, 13 years ago, begins thus. This article will change your perceptions of what you thought you knew regarding the inner plane history, purpose, and destiny of the human race. In other words, this is the ultimate conspiracy theory. Return of the Dragon Lords by Frater Fabian. We will assume that most of our readers in this case our listeners, are familiar with the biblical legend from Genesis and the book of Enoch of the war in heaven, the fallen angels and their mating with the daughters of men to bring forth a race of giants who walked the earth in those mythical days before the great flood. And this haunting remembrance is echoed in the ancient Greek myth cycle recounting the Battle of the Titans, and in other similar recollections of a dawn age. In those prehistoric times, gods descended to earth, mated with mortals, sired mighty heroes to struggle against supernatural and often superintelligent reptilian monsters. All this is part of our planetary cultural heritage. In recent years, numerous writers have capitalized on the unending fascination we have for these archetypal myth themes by recasting them in modern dress starting with Richard Shaver's antediluvian cavern-dwelling Garrows in the late 1940s. This progression continued with Eric von Dannegan's Ancient Astronauts in the 1960s, through Zachariah Sitchin's Anunnaki in the 1970s, to culminate in the self-fulfilling prophecy of UFO and alien close encounters and abductions in the present era. UFO abductions usually involve sexual molestation in the form of mysterious and painful medical examinations. It is important to note that many abductees are first contacted in childhood. These early memories are often suppressed and suffer continuing attacks throughout their adult lives. Closely paralleling this extraterrestrial onslaught on a darker terrestrial side is the Rosemary's Baby Syndrome of Satanic Ritual Abuse wherein thousands of distraught women reported recovering suppressed memories of horrific childhood experiences suffered at the hands of a vast and powerful underground satanic cult network. Prominently featured in these recollections is the breeding theme, wherein the victim recalls having been ritually raped to produce a child for human sacrifice. These widespread accounts are remarkably similar and just as remarkably lacking in physical evidence. They are also 
rendered suspect as physical plane events when we consider that cultists, even Satanists in the real world, may indoctrinate but seldom if ever terrorize their own children, at least not in Europe, America, Australia, and etc. We will discuss what we believe to be modern African and prehistoric European archetypes of this mass obsession with satanic ritual abuse and the dark origins of the werewolf legend, which we published in the next issue. At the outset of this discussion, let me make it clear that I am not challenging the essential validity of these alien abductions and satanic ritual abuse experiences. Far from it. However, the traumatic intensity and wide-ranging manifestation of these phenomena is more the case in point. The here and now physical reality of these contacts and conspiracies is not an issue we need to prove or disprove in this article. Suffice to say that there is very little support for their actual corporate existence in the present social milieu. Conversely, their presence on the inner spiritual planes and their ever-increasing influence on our outer physical world is becoming more and more apparent to those of us perceptive enough to look behind the veil of reality for intrinsic and even sentient causative agents. Now, given the extent, depth, and intensity of these phenomena, it should be obvious that something wonderful and or terrible is going on here, and we ignore it at our peril. The authors who have promoted these themes and acted as advocates for their environments have struggled to produce documentary physical evidence of objective phenomenon. More often, they have offered elaborate excuses for the lack of such proofs. The ancient astronauts, the works of Van Denigan and Sitchin, are said to have come here thousands of years ago from other planets in actual spacecraft. In the more recent alien encounter reports, extraterrestrial origins are often cited along with physical implants, impregnations, candle mutilations, and mysterious crop circles. Emphasis is always on the ultimate physical and objective reality of these alien beings, their means of transportation, and their interaction with humans. The subjective, dreamlike aspects of these accounts, time loss, memory suppression, mind control, teleportation, telepathy, etc., are begrudgingly conceded to alien high-tech or even alien disinformation to excuse the surrealistic, nightmarish quality of what must always be considered a real experience. Now, because... If it isn't an objective, physical, ultimately photographable, and audio-recordable reality, then the contactee is hallucinating and obviously must be insane, at least by the standards we use to judge sanity. Our Western European Cartesian anti-psychic prejudice 
an obsolete inheritance from the age of reason, has separated our imagination from measurable reality. This arbitrary constraint is a compromise in the service of engineering, and it has impelled us to paint ourselves into a psychological corner. Outside of even totally abstract realms of religion and philosophy, we cannot allow our minds to even conceive of a non-physical intelligence operating beyond what we know can be scientifically proved by rigorous method and the one and only severely limited level of awareness we conveniently choose to recognize. When we consider the UFO, alien, abduction, satanic cult, conspiracy phenomenon from a non-Cartesian perspective, the writings of Carl Jung, Jacques Vallée, Rupert Sheldrake, and Terence McKenna emerge like gold nuggets shining in a pan of gravel. Jung connected the modern flying saucer sightings with medieval visions of angels and demons via his theory of a universal collective unconscious. This deep mind is described as a level of subconscious awareness beyond the personal psyche. It is shared by all of us and contains a storehouse of images Jung called archetypes, which are thought to be the gods, goddesses, angels, demons, and monsters of our mythologies. Jung considered the UFO manifestations as a modern upwelling from this underground river of dreams. In occultism, we refer to this other dimension as the astral plane or the inner planes. The French scientist Jacques Vallée began to collect historical accounts of sightings and contacts from ancient and medieval times up to the present. And when this historical progression is viewed with a dispassionate scrutiny, one remarkable similarity between these accounts was noticed. All of the manifestations were described in the terms of their own era's technology and in the visual imagery common to that time. A measure of this could be attributed to poverty of language and the limits of conception. But as an outstanding example, we should cite the well-documented giant airship encounters in the United States during the 1890s. While the officers commanding these mysterious aircraft spoke perfect English and dressed in the current mode of fashion. In fact, they claimed to be American engineers. After reading Vallée's documentation and commentary, I could not help but think that if the UFO phenomenon had occurred before World War II, the visitors might well have arrived in spaceships fitted with rocket tubes and French curve-like fins and the astronauts' costume in capes, tights, and jackboots a la Flash Gordon. But... Would this have meant that they were deceiving us? Or would we have been deceiving ourselves? The answer to both questions is certainly yes. 
The biologist Rupert Sheldrake has proposed that everything in the universe leaves its imprint as a template to replicate its future form. He calls these shadows of creation morphic resonant fields. The ancient Akashic records in modern dress. He suggests that they have a very long duration and a wide-ranging effect. Sheldrake's theory is remarkably similar to Plato's notion of an ideal form, influencing physical manifestation, a modern tenet of practical occultism and magic. Sheldrake's research indicates that these resident fields also influence patterns of thought and behavior. Finally, we come to the fascinating neo-shamanic revelations of the psychedelic mystic Turret Spikina, who suggested that Stroforio cubensis, a magic mushroom, might itself be an intelligent extraterrestrial life form which we could contact by consuming. McKenna dismissed conventional radio telescope searches for advanced extraterrestrials as a hunt for a good Italian restaurant at the other end of the galaxy. Most important to our argument, McKenna stated that we are all coming to the end of history. Time is compressing. The myth-theme tracks are merging. Age-old memories are surfacing. And the transition to a new form of consciousness is about to take place. At this point, I probably have you confused, and I will admit to being purposefully obscure in order to establish the background for my case and to make a stronger point. Let me state two reasonable assumptions before we continue. First, these alien contact phenomena are too long-enduring and too widespread for each and every one of them to be an objective physical manifestation of extraterrestrial intervention. Most of these occurrences must therefore be subjective reflections or perhaps memories of actual events is second, and conversely, they are too long-enduring and too widespread to be disregarded as clinical psychic aberrations. Something very important is going on, and has been going on for a long, long time, in some ways marvelous, in other ways terrifying. The clues to this mystery are all right in front of us, right inside us. But because it is so close, we insist on ignoring the obvious. In his 19th century Faustian drama, Manfred, Lord Byron gave us the clearest explanation of the origin and nature of our extraterrestrial demonic heritage when he penned these frightening lines. The seventh spirit, the star which rules thy destiny, was ruled ere earth began by me. It was a world as fresh as air. As air revolved round Saint-Nier, its course was free and regular. Space bosomed by a lovelier star. The hour arrived and it became a wandering mass of shapeless flame, a pathless comet and a curse. 
the menace of the universe, still rolling on with innate force, without a sphere, without a course, a bright deformity on high, the monster of the upper sky, and thou, beneath its influence born, thou worm, whom I obey with scorn, forced by a power which is not thine, and went thee but to make thee mine, for this brief moment to descend, where these weak spirits round thee bend, and parley with a thing like thee, what wouldst thou, child of clay, with me? The late Richard S. Shaker was deeply affected by these verses, but he failed to grasp their full significance. A planet inhabited by intelligent beings have been destroyed by a cosmic catastrophe, leaving a litter of debris between Mars and Jupiter, the asteroid belt. Sitchin appropriately dubbed this lost planet Tiamat after the ancient Sumerian supermother, who had been dismembered by the god Marduk. In Byron's version, Satan, the disembodied ruler of this long-dead world, is conjured in a vision by Manfred the Magician. Schaefer, the total materialist, could not accept such a non-physical survival. Schaefer's gods and demons, as well as such things, traveled by spaceship. Schaefer's editor, Ray Palmer, who was an occultist who founded Fate Magazine, suggested to Shaver that his evil subterranean tarots and angelic extraterrestrial tarots were interplane realities, not gross physical beings, but Shaver insisted that they were real in a mundane physical sense. I've been in a cave, she declared, actually the cave Shaver had explored, or what contemporary diabolist Kenneth Grant calls the tunnels of set, a network of subjective catacombs underlying the equally subjective paths of the tree of life. Shaver's compulsion to deny what seems to be an obvious implication, obvious at least to Lord Byron, further obscured the menace he was trying to uncover. He absolutely insisted that his revelations were correctly objective experiences rather than indirectly subjective visions. And this dogmatism was so strong in Richard Shaver, as it is in many clairvoyants and contactees, that the real inner plane conspirators might well have split their sides, figuratively, with laughter at his attempted expose. Now, before we spell this out in terms that no one can fail to understand, we need to consider one more thing. Human beings have evolved, like all creatures in the universe, on the principle of natural selection toward the survival of the fittest. Art, music, literature, and the love of beauty for its own sake have no practical purpose in this scheme. They are attributes of a different environment. Development, an evolvement, a divine inspiration, an activity of the soul. This realization prompted the Master Plotinus to declare that beauty was an approach to holiness, in effect, a bridge to the soul. Religious and mystical philosophies hold that the soul is an immortal sentient being that inhabits a mortal human body whose conscious mind can be aware or unaware 
of the soul's presence. In Hermetic philosophy, we are taught that all human souls, when reduced to their unencrusted inner core, are identical sparks of the universal God. To merge with any spark of this pure light is to become God in the center of the universe. We are also taught that the human mind comes equipped at birth with a multitude of angels and demons, a collection of lesser souls orbiting like planets about the central sun of the God soul. And whether or not one accepts the concept of reincarnation, an extraterrestrial or ancient terrestrial origin for these lesser angelic and demonic souls would seem probable and is in keeping with the venerable teachings of Christ's greatest Hermes. Now, when an inhabited planet in the microcosm, the bigger universe outside, blows up, such as the event Lucifer describes in the passage from Byron's Manfred, where does the swarm of dispossessed immortal souls go? Well, obviously, to the nearest, most attractive world they can find, where they will proceed to infest the most intelligent, dominant species, in our case, humankind, and continue to reincarnate. Amphibians who visited us from the Sirius system thousands of years ago were remembered in mythology as Oannes and Dagon, and in, and in astrology as Capricorn, probably died here and were reincarnated in earthly human form. On the dark side of non-human reincarnation, we now know that a huge meteor impact wiped out the dominant reptile species on this planet 67 million years ago. Were these sentient and soul beings among them? Dragon lords, perhaps. The raptors of the Cretaceous period were remarkably intelligent and ruthless predators. They were well on their way toward evolving into a bipedal form. In fact, we can project the natural evolution of their shape into something very much like the short gray aliens reported by the contactees. Would such creatures have had their own spiritual agenda diametrically opposed to the human quest for love, beauty, harmony, and unity with God? Wouldn't they have resented the physical annihilation of their species? Especially when the meteor that destroyed them hit precisely in the midst of an unusually centered sulfur deposit thus raining fire and brimstone upon the earth. Oh, the odds of this happening at random were over a thousand to one. God had delivered a surgical strike just as accurate as the biblical destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Is it possible that these dragon lords continued a shadowed evolution beyond the veil of solid matter? Remember the serpent in Eden. And if these draconians had survived as astral beings, would they not seek to conquer us from within? Perhaps through genetic engineering, eventually crossbreed to resurrect their own species. Wouldn't those efforts increase dramatically if we were approaching the end of a time cycle? 
For just a moment, let us consider the numerous clues to this menace embedded in our myths, in our myths, folklore, and popular literature. There is no physical historical reason for modern Northern Europeans to remember dragons, or medieval Europeans to remember dragons, or Dark Age Europeans to remember dragons. Why do we carry such all-pervading ancestral fear of cold-blooded, non-human, super-intelligent, evil reptilian creatures? Why are we so fascinated with the nightmarish fantasies of H.P. Lovecraft, which so often involve the crossbreeding of humans with extraterrestrial and extra-dimensional monsters? Because perhaps they are a warning that the old ones really are lurking within us, or, as Lovecraft himself put it, the old ones are, the old ones were, and the old ones shall be, not in the spaces we know, but between them. Living on like secret parasites in the minds of individual human beings, reptilian souls, and you should recall that the human fetus evolves through a reptilian phase. And a portion of the human brain remains essentially reptilian, and it would survive to dominate and obscure the god-soul sun in the center of each human host's microcosmic solar system within so that they could absorb its power for their own use and deny their victim's mind any glimpse of God's inner glory. But are the draconians our only interplane enemies? Let us not forget the lycanthropes. The Human Leopard Society was still practicing its awful rights in Africa as late as the 1960s. At rare intervals in Central Africa, lions possessed of uncanny intelligence have amazed and terrorized natives and Europeans alike. A strange love-hate relationship between humans and wolves goes far back into the mists of prehistory. The werewolf still prowls the dark forest of our nightmares. Such draconian and lycanthropic entities, demons in the truest sense of the word, would be essentially sociopathic from our perspective and interested only in power for their own sakes and their own desires. Those researchers who kept looking for the physical evidence of actual satanic cults behind the rise of Nazism in Germany had the right idea. But were they looking in the wrong place? Adolf Hitler recorded his vision of the new man, strong, cunning, and utterly ruthless. But would his new man have even been human? What were the Nazis trying to breed? Did they even know? Dare we make a connection between Nazi human breeding experiments, the awful surgeries recalled by alien abductees, and the present scientific obsession with genetic engineering? On the wilder side, we might even factor in Edgar Casey, Ruth Montgomery, and Richard Shaver's memories of ancient Atlantean genetically engineered hybrids who were said to have inspired. 
Was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein a glimpse into our future, our past, or both? Is it symbiotic, prophetic, or merely a coincidence that the demon star Algol, the eye of Medusa, is moving toward us at 3,600 miles an hour? What alien thought forms might precede its arrival? Even if physical mass cannot be accelerated beyond the speed of light, there is no such limitation on the speed of thought. If we concede that such demons exist in all of us, is it not surprising that they should rise up in mass and take possession of whole groups, cultures, and even nations when fear, injustice, prejudice, and hatred open the door for them. When these conditions are met, darkness descends and terror rules the night. In Nazi Germany, in Stalin's Soviet Union, in Pol Pot's Cambodia, currently in the Balkans and the Middle East. And what about the prosperous little town of Salem, Massachusetts, 300 years ago? And when Tachi Washington today, and in both cases, I'm referring to the accusers, not the accused, as demon-possessed. Sometimes the demons open the door without being formally invited. For example, consider the recent epidemics of apparently unmotivated schoolyard and workplace shooting incidents in American middle-class communities perpetrated by people who were not members of gangs, users of drugs, or even juvenile delinquents. Such anomalies are a strong indication of a transpersonal connection linking and perhaps even directing individual demonic phenomenon. As a case in point, the perverse timing of the Littleton, Colorado incident coming right before a crucial vote on right-to-carry legislation and a in the Colorado State Legislature would indicate a methodical chess game agenda more abstract than what could have been conceived by Columbine's high school emotion-driven trench-book mafia teenage killers. And at this point in our discussion, the question of an outer world organization with a command structure, assets, and capabilities must be dealt with. Am I... And in this case, am I afraid in this case we are and that we must seriously challenge some firmly held misconceptions. We must reject the concept of a consciously directed outer world conspiratorial network. Unfortunately, there is no Cosa Nostra for demons that the FBI can infiltrate. And conversely, demons certainly influence Cosa Nostra and sometimes the FBI. And the idea that some quasi-Masonic or traditionally satanic secret society with robes and grips and passwords, like the Illuminati, the Palladians, etc., etc., has any direct control over her or has consciously functioning alliance with the hierarchy governing this ancient evil is not plausible for the most basic reason. It is unnecessary. An outer world group professing such an evil alliance, even secretly, would be useful to the demonic hierarchy only as a diversion 
a scapegoat, and it is much more effective and profitable for them to promote their evil designs in the name of God, of science, of the state, the race, or the public good. However, we can be virtually certain that demonic organizations actually do exist on the astral plane, and that is the battleground where they can be met and defeated. And trying to combat them on the physical plane is like treating the symptoms without curing the disease. In actual fact, our outer world has been ruled for the past 300 years by a few hundred very wealthy families. Uh, these people owe their primary loyalty to their relatives and their offspring. They do not jeopardize their family fortunes at the command of any religion, nation, or philosophy. And the idea that this powerful international elite involves itself in secret rituals is a popular delusion. However, they are just as vulnerable as the rest of us to demonic possession and manipulation. And because of their power and influence, they are much more lucrative targets for the draconians, the extraterrestrials, and the lycanthropes lurking in that vast collective intelligence we call the universal mind. On the good side, we are all blessed with swarms of extraterrestrial and angelic entities, gods and goddesses, and wonderfully empowered beings of light who live on within our own personal microcosm and in the macrocosmic deeps of the space beyond. And in many cases, they are quite literally our guardian angels. Shaver called these creatures the elder gods, and he envisioned them as following the tides of tea or positive energy flows that radiate through the greater universe. Now, these mighty beings and lesser terrestrial counterparts Shaver called Tarot, who lived in splendid underground palaces reminiscent of Alibaba's treasure cave. Now, one does not have to be a rocket scientist to see the three-level model of the human psyche shared in general terms by the Kabbalists, by Dante, by Freud, and by Jung. Those of us in the Hermetic tradition have long known of the awesome power and transforming goodness to be gained in the process of angelic invocation. The four archangels are the quarters of the elements, Raphael, Mikhail, Gabriel, and Oreo, are the direct messengers and power givers of the universal God force, the continuing radiations of the Big Bang. One does not have to enslave the mind to a Judeo-Christian doctrine in order to partake of this transformative energy. All great religions have a measure of the truth, and as the saying goes, all paths up the mountain converge as we near the summit. Shaver's visions, seen through a glass darkly, are, are a useful but far from perfect analog to describe the history, structure, development, and intentions of our angelic mentors and demonic infiltrators. We should also view Sitchin's revelations, the Arantia book, and even the writings of the Venerable Swedenborg as personal interpretations. Esoteric students intent on the truth should go back to the original source material the Bible, the Book of Enoch, Sumerian and Greek mythology. 
and the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus to establish their own personal connection. Spiritual warriors, ceremonial magicians of the Solomonic tradition should make alliance with angelic powers, acquire first-hand knowledge from the ancient gods and goddesses, and then directly control elemental spirits and master the demons themselves. At this point, let me strongly enjoin the reader against any tendency to assume that these extraterrestrial, ancient terrestrial, and subterranean entities, angelic, demonic, and elemental, are merely separate, discrete, and inert data files stored back in an individual's memory, either racial memory via DNA or through previous incarnation or both, it is becoming ever more obvious, even to the uninitiated, that they are active and creative intelligences, interpersonally connected and directed by their own hierarchies following their own agendas. If Charles McKinnon is correct, and we are approaching the end of, of history, the culmination of our age, and a transit point into a new phase of existence, then it follows that time itself is compressing, spiraling inward, bringing the memories, hopes, glories, and terrors of the ages together in a final denouement where the prose description falls short of evoking such conception. I will attempt to define it in verse. The Secret of Time Time is a dust devil in the desert of eternity, sucking up the sand grains of our souls from the last imploding gyre, whirling them out to the boundaries of the spatial cube, then contracting like a spinning top to an upper vanishing point from which a succeeding gyre shall somewhere be born. Thoughts of the apocalypse, visions of heaven and hell, and all the allegories of mythology rise in crushing splendor as the spiral tightens toward the end. And I will make bold to suggest that as we approach the climax of this historical cycle, we will see more physical manifestations, visitations, miracles, and monstrosities generated by the acceleration and compression of time, the veil between what is remembered or imagined and what we call physical reality. It flutters torn and tattered in the rising wind of a mighty psychic storm. Each individual human being is granted the opportunity to find God, the soul, within and merge his or her purified consciousness with the immortal, omnipresent, and supremely sentient being in the lowest, most practical sense, a lifeboat to carry us to the shore of the next world island. The paradox in this quest is that one must be a free and independent individual a grail knight, if you will, to undertake the adventure, but to succeed at the climax of the effort, the individual attributes of one's independent personality are sacrificed to achieve unity with the omnipresent universe of God. I suspect that it will be at this final juncture, both in the inner world of the personal microcosm and the outer world of the microcosm, that the demons will fight the hardest to capture the glowing jewels within us.
certain of these reptilian lycanthropic and vampiric souls may have already attained their own discarded level of godlike unity, a dark shadow god, reminiscent of Abraham Merritt's Kraken, prematurely created when their species was destroyed. These minions of the dark god dwelling within us might capture our own seed of divine essence and suck the god energy like vampires. Their method would be to keep the soul obscured and encrusted with baser animal desires of selfish vanities so that none of the immortal light would shine through and the human host would never realize what precious gift he or she carried within. Perhaps it has always been so for each of us, but now, as the greater spiral of time tightens in a whirlpool, sucking us all toward doom or glory, we might expect an even greater conflict and a more marvelous reward. Considering the implications of what we have discussed above, regular angelic invocation and the attainment of knowledge and conversation with one's holy guardian angel and the perfection of the inner body of light would seem to be a good investment. We call it the great work. And uh, that concludes seventh phrase version of Return of the Dragon Lords. Now, once again, I mentioned that this is from the Seventh Ray Book 2, The Red Ray, which you can find on Amazon. And uh, if you want to have the full script of the article that I just read tonight, along with the chapter of Adams's Quest, which dramatizes the same theme. And in that same issue, we also have... Uh, New Tarot Trumps for an 11 Spirit Tree of Life. And um, on the humorous side, the humorous side, we have Secrets of the World's Worst Writers. That's a satire on Arthur Edward Waite. And then Nazi Bimbos and the Sword of Siegfried, which is a sent up on the Nazi spook books, which you wouldn't show. So, um, go on Amazon and uh, get, the, uh, get the Red Ray. Because uh, you may need to to read this in text to to, to grasp it. Uh, listening to it may be perhaps a little a little too rich and hypnotic or whatever. But uh, next week, going along with the Halloween season, next week we'll have another uh, piece that will uh, hopefully thrill you and chill you. And until then. Pleasant dreams and uh, good magic.